How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Uh, hi, I would like to comment on, um, you're asking for comments on the, the teenagers that um, have depression. You wonder if the apps are an issue. I just want to say my daughter did have a depression, uh, severe enough that she was suicidal actually needed to be hospitalized a year ago. She was 15 years old. This is Mary. It's not her real name, because she wanted to share her story and protect her daughter. I think it was triggered by the isolation of COVID, because right after COVID, when she started going back to school, you could tell that she was very stressed and had intense needs of connecting and connection. And this boy came, and she jumped into that relationship with an unusual intensity. And he dropped her, uh, and I think that was too much, and that triggered that depression on someone who's already anxious and stressed. So I think that the fact that she was isolated and didn't have the didn't have to connect with friends as much to negotiate uh, what do you do when there's a crush what do you do with rejection what do you do with girls that look at you that the, the competition with girls and anything all the negotiation the social aspect of being with your peers they did not have during covid and i could see uh, in her behavior that it impacted her that's mom mary Again, we're not using her real name to protect her daughter. Now this is Abby Raphael. She lives in Port Angeles, Washington. I think that very much so um, Instagram played, Instagram, Facebook, MySpace, those all played a a decent sized role in that um, because I was constantly comparing myself to, you know, all the girls that We see, you know, perfect lives, perfect body, airbrushed to heaven. And yeah, I mean, I was just sitting there feeling like I wasn't good enough and that I would never, you know, be worthy of, you know, being one of those perfect women in their perfect houses with the perfect body and their perfect family. And I have not been on, since COVID hit, I have not been on social media and I have never been happier. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Abby 
and Mary's daughter speak to an ongoing trend in the lives of, lives of American teenage girls. They are struggling with their mental health. According to a recent report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2021, nearly three in five teenage girls felt persistent sadness. And one in three girls, one in three, seriously considered attempting suicide. Well, why? And what can be done to help them? That's what we're going to talk about today. And we'll begin with Moira Rin. She's the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Rin, welcome to On Point. Thank you. So when the CDC first released this report uh, late la- or m- the middle of last month, it really um, was quite disturbing. What was your first uh, reaction to these seemingly just shocking numbers? Yeah, no, I mean, of course, tremendous concern as a child and adolescent psychiatrist who who works with teenagers. Um, I have seen firsthand um, this level of distress in young people. Uh, and unfortunately, these numbers are not uh, surprising me, uh, just given the distress and the challenges that young people have had during the pandemic. But as we're seeing by reports for girls, very much so for girls as well. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about what you're seeing? You said you've seen it firsthand. So we have seen, and you've seen this across the nation, just increased rates in general of teenagers and their families reaching out and seeking out help for mood disorders, anxiety disorders, substance uh, use issues at, at a very high high rate. And we all have probably noticed across the nation, different states declaring uh, youth mental health emergencies, uh, young people presenting to the emergency departments with uh, serious events of suicide attempts, um, you know, mental health distress, difficulty managing and uh, navigating uh, their their daily life. Um, you know, certainly those of us in the field of of child mental health have seen these difficulties even prior to the pandemic. We have seen a rise over time in these issues. Uh, But certainly the pandemic added an additional significant stressor. You'll see quotes people saying it was fuel on a fire that was already occurring in youth mental health. And, And that stems from just the ability to access treatment and get the needed treatment, to access the type of supports parents and the young people need uh, in terms of these issues and struggling with that, with getting access. And then you have the pandemic that uh, impacts adolescents where it's the most important time of their social development, where they are trying to understand themselves in relationship to their peer relationships, to their parents, to their schools, what their future is going to uh, mean for them. And the pandemic, in order to be certainly to prevent the spread of the virus with this sort of complete lockdown um, in order to do, certainly that was important from a public health perspective in virus containment, but it had this 
uh, impact for young people all of a sudden not having access to the relationships, the peers, the other adults in their life, like their teachers or their coaches that provide them support and also those activities, you know, outside of the home that help them continue to develop themselves interpersonally has been a, a has had a significant negative impact for young people mm. during this time. Well, I will say, though, that the prolonged lockdown Yes. Especially of young people. I mean, it's reports like this that are now maybe this is for another show for us, but we ought to be asking ourselves maybe if that prolonged lockdown of particularly young people, mm -hmm. uh, if its costs outweighed its benefits. But but I, I you made a really important point, Dr. Rin, that this um, CDC, this latest CDC report is not just um a discrete data point from 2021. And in fact, right. it is, is a, a decade-long trend Correct. that they did analysis of, of 2011 to 2021. And on, on some factors, they say that they're seeing uh, actual Positive. positives, right? right. Like, right. Um, uh, what is it? They, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, they, they, they've shown to improve overall in terms of risky sexual behavior and also substance abuse and decrease in bullying at school. Um, so those those are positives. And I did want to, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. We do not want to ignore the positives that we have seen. Unfortunately, the negatives have been in the area of protective sexual health behaviors. So such as using uh, condom use, seeking out uh, uh, sexually transmitted disease testing if needed and HIV testing. But of real concern that you can see in this survey is the experiences of violence mm -hmm. and also unwanted sexual uh, for sexual experiences that young girls are reporting. But I also want to mention for the LGBTQ plus youth, all of their parameters on this survey. I know we're focusing on girls, but this also impacts, you know, uh, girls and young people and sexual as uh, those that are identifying their uh, sexual preferences, um, showing great difficulty in terms of violence, lack of support um, at home, and um, increase in suicidal thinking and suicide attempts as well. And unfortunately, across all groups, we have seen a rise in hopelessness, sadness, but particularly in, in girls, black youth, and LGBTQ plus uh, youth mm -hmm. um, as well. And so I, I do think this level of isolation, the loss of supports to young people had that they do depend on the school systems for in other types of outside social groups. Um, and I really appreciated that young person that was talking about the impact of social media. Social media has a lot of positives and there can be a lot of information shared, but there's a lot of misinformation on social media as well. And there's the visual aspects of this um, that's portrayed in terms of how we're expected, particularly for girls, how we're, they're expected to look or or be or dress um, that became a major outlet and provided support across groups, but at the same time, for certainly for more vulnerable individuals, it's had a negative impact in terms of how they see themselves. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that more um, a little bit later in the show. Sure. But I, I want to just, we have, we're going to go to a break in a couple of minutes, Dr. Rin, but before mm -hmm. we do that, I wanted to get your sense about why there seems to be, again, across this 10-year time span, this major disparity between 
uh, teen girls and teen boys, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm looking at the CDC data here, and they say in 2011, um, 36% of teen girls reported feeling sad or, or hopeless, persistently so. Yes. 21% of boys. And then by 2021, it's 57% of, right. girl, of girls and 29% of boys why? Right. Why? Yeah. So, 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 just yeah. So, one thing, and I'll try to do this fast because I know about yeah. your, that your break coming. So, so one thing that we do see in adolescence is that girls start to outpace boys, if you will, in terms of developing symptoms of depression. Now, depression is a multifactorial illness, so it's never just one thing. It's multiple factors. So, prior to the pandemic. We have, it has always been my whole career now as a child psychiatrist that girls for about two to one sort of uh, represent its increase in experiencing depression. And it's felt to do with a lot of different factors. One is trauma. You know, the trauma that girls, uh, some girls experience in terms of their safety, sexual or physical abuse is one. The other is in terms of family history of depression. So if there is parental mood disorders, that places them at a higher risk. And then there is lots of studies, although we don't know the full answer, in terms of during that adolescent period, you have a lot of hormone changes. And so there are researchers trying to better understand that in terms of how that may be uh, uh, Mm. to play. And then there's biological factors. You may have a genetic vulnerability. So there can be another, there's a number of pathways um, to get to develop depression. But we do seek for girls, there are higher risk factors okay. in terms of violence, there's lack of safety, sexual abuse, maltreatment, how they're treated in their families and the supports that they have. And then you add on to the pan, you know, the pandemic yeah. of what it's yeah. brought to girls. Well, Dr. Moira Rin, stand by for just a moment. We'll have a lot more to talk about uh, regarding teenage girls in this country and mental health. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about why teen girls in the United States are reporting the highest levels of mental distress or mental health crisis Uh, in a decade, and that's according to the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which we'll talk uh, much more about through the course of this program. I'm joined today by Dr. Moira Rin. She is the chair for the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University. And with us now in the On Point studio is Lisa DeMoor. She's the author of several books uh, on teen mental health, including Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, 
Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls, and The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents, which is to be published this year. It has been published already this you year. Know, last okay. Month. Yep. Well, Lisa Damore, welcome to On Point. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you've been paying attention to this for quite some time. Um, can you tell me what you think, or, or how long this sort of um, mental health crisis amongst uh, America's young girls has been going on? Is it hard to say? I think it's hard to say. We certainly saw concerns rising in the decade prior to the pandemic. Um, We have always recognized, as was mentioned, that girls are much more likely than boys to suffer from depression. I don't think we were using crisis terms until around the pandemic, Um, and I think those are warranted. I think we also want to be mindful of what this means for parents today. You know, the data that were collected and that the CDC reported were um, collected in the fall of 2021, and they were asking about mood over the previous year and asking about a period of low mood for two weeks over the previous year. And so that very much locates those data in time and do, in fact, map onto exactly what we were seeing clinically. Teens were miserable. Girls maybe in particular were miserable. Um, But I also know that in many ways for students and teenagers, as things have returned to a more normal pattern, a lot of kids do feel better. Mm -hmm. And so... We want to both be attentive to the fact that things are not good for teenagers and certainly were very bad for teenagers in the pandemic, and then think about what that means now. Yeah, so this is important to try to understand um, because, as I as we talked about with Dr. Rin, um, there's this sort of adding fuel to the fire situation of the pandemic. But if I understand correctly, at least according to the data from the, the CDC Uh, survey, which they do every two years, that there has been this, it's gone up every two years, these levels of distress. It has been going up. um, And we did see a big spike around this time. And, you know, of course, what we're hoping is that it starts to go down a little bit, that we can end up putting an asterisk on these data because they were collected when they were. But we don't know that. And we're waiting to find out. And we do think about the particular impact on girls in terms of social isolation, perhaps in terms of the impact of social media where kids did spend a huge amount of time on that online when they were in the pandemic. The other thing is these data are self-report about mood. And one rule in psychology is that when in distress, girls tend to collapse in on themselves. Boys are more likely to act out. Mm So we didn't have a question that asked boys, have you been hard on your family of late? Or they may not have reported it even as faithfully as um, a girl might have reported feeling sad. So some of this, I am sure, is picking up differential levels of distress. But again, I always want to be mindful of when were the data collected and how was the question asked and, you know, what are we really looking at here? Okay, that's interesting and important. Dr. Rin, what what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I I agree. There's always challenges with survey data. Um, um, But there are, you know, I totally agree. We have to see. However, I I do think that there's a broader issue in terms of access to psychological and psychiatric services for young people. And I feel in the field we are we have been seeing this progressive rise, just given the lack of help that there is when parents and a young person think that they do require the help. And then I think the pandemic has just added to that. Okay. So I'm going to ask for both of your, uh, Lisa, for, for Lisa and, and Moira, for your both 
you to give me your forgiveness in advance and all listeners here because I'm just about to ask it just a dumb question. <laughs> Never uh, a dumb question. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I'm in my mid-40s and I'm thinking back to when I was in my teens, which was a long time ago, <laughs> granted. It was the late 80s and early 90s. And... Um, I can't actually imagine that mental health supports for young people was tremendously better back then. And at the same time, I I don't recall or, I, you know, I can go back and look at studies. I don't recall seeing the same levels of self-reported distress. So I guess what I'm trying to get a handle on is do teens, especially teen girls, are they really actually they are actually feeling more uh, uh, or less mentally healthy now than they were a generation or two ago. Is that true, Lisa? It is true. And it was true before the pandemic. We have been seeing rising rates of distress, and we've been calling the question about what is this about. And the kinds of things we consider are sleep reduction. Teenagers sleep much less now than they used to. That is very, very closely aligned to mental health. And then what might be causing that might be academic pressure, might be technology in the bedroom, We are seeing teens telling us that they are greatly stressed by things like climate change, school shootings, political polarization. They are aware of these things. They are appropriately anxious about these things. So this is real. It has been growing. And something else um, that Moira mentioned that I think is really important in terms of where this arrives at a level of a crisis is that as the needs of teenagers grow – The workforce to care for them does not grow at the same rate, that Mm -hmm. taking care of teenagers is a fairly specialized area. Not a whole lot of us do it. And so then, especially in the pandemic, when there was this huge surge in need, it's not like you can instantly create a seasoned workforce to meet that need. So the two together really put us in a jam. Mm. Dr. Rin, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I totally totally agree with Lisa. And I, I think when you think about sort of, you know, get other data, another data point that's concerning along with the CDC, again, albeit a survey, um, is a recent publication from the JAMA Network that is showing the mortality data for young people from 1999 to 2020. All-cause mortality rate has been up significantly by 10%. Um, And homicide rate since 2013 of young people in this in group has also increased. And it is involving and felt to be caused by certainly, what Lisa mentioned, sort of shooting, so firearms, access to more potent opioid substances like fentanyl, and the mental health crisis mm. that, that we're in, and the number of adverse life experiences children are having, such as trauma and neglect. And so, you know, we are seeing different indices suggesting that, you know, this is concerning and this is serious, and we really need to have an organized approach for girls, but also for other young people um, and who are showing this. And to Lisa's point, boys will not report in the same way it comes out of different other ways of different risky, risky behaviors that also puts them at great risk, uh, a great risk for for physical harm. Yeah, that's an important point. And have we have we seen an increase in those behaviors? If we're going to sort of say that there's a there's a correlation between the, their boys' mental health and those risky behaviors. Yeah, it seems there does seem to be a suggestion. It doesn't prove in some of the data that we're getting, but it does seem to suggest it. Okay. Well, um, doc, Dr. Rin um, and Lisa Demore, just hang on here for a second because I'm keenly aware of the fact that n- none of us are youthful. 
<laughs> if I can put it, sure. put it that way, or or in the dewy years of our youth, let me put it that I'm way. I'm a solid 52. We're, we'll just name it. Well, people can't see, but she doesn't look it. I'll say that. So I want to bring in someone who's uh, who's sort of living this life right now. And her name is Anastasia, and uh, Anastasia uh, Vlasova, and she's joining us from New York, and she's a mental health activist and host of Our Turn to Talk. It's a mental health podcast for teens and parents, and she's currently a sophomore at New York University. Anastasia, welcome to On Point. Hello. Thank you for having me. Okay. So first of all, tell us, um, you were still in, are you still in your teen years, or have you just exited them? I actually just turned, <clears throat> excuse me, I just turned 20 a few weeks ago, oh, okay. so I've officially exited. Oh, happy birthday, happy belated <laughs> birthday. But that means that, that you were still, I mean, technically a teenager um, at the onset of the pandemic. So I'd first like to ask you, like, you know, honestly, how was your experience of um, those early COVID years? Honestly, I enjoyed the experience. <laughs> Um, mainly because when the pandemic first hit, I was in my second semester of junior year of high school, and that was an incredibly academic, intense period of time in preparation for college, and there were exams and um, lots of deadlines and important assignments due, Um, and I was also incredibly busy with extracurriculars and tennis, and so to have uh, the freedom to actually relax and engage in some self-care instead of maintain this go, 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 crazy busy schedule was quite a gift. And I feel like that sentiment was shared among a lot of my friends because we were finally given an actual break. Um, however, as the pandemic progressed, obviously, there are moments in time when I felt incredibly socially isolated. Uh, luckily, though, two of my close friends and I started a podcast, which uh, we held virtually every week. And so that was an opportunity to bond with each other. And then by the time I actually attended university, we were back in person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it okay. was it was fine, but still 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 had my ups and downs. Yeah. So so there's a, a variation there and it's a really interesting one. Uh, so hang on here, Anastasia. Um, Lisa Damore. What, what Anastasia is saying is reminding me of a show that we did early on um, when everything was getting locked down. It was with two education professors from the University of Georgia, and they were, they were saying that they hoped that this would be a moment of pause to actually – their words were to allow um, kids to decompress a little bit. Um, and it sounds like Anastasia actually had a chance to experience that. I have heard this from other teenagers too. And, you know, for teenagers in very demanding – Um, academic situations and who are very ambitious themselves, high school is ridiculously intense. We ask a huge amount of young people. And um, I actually, I had a daughter who was a sophomore in high school when the pandemic began. And suddenly her AP exams were 45-minute online multiple choice. You know, I mean, it was maybe they were always multiple choice, but it changed the game entirely. And we were all sort of standing around stupefied by how little was in the end asked, which was entirely appropriate given the circumstances, I think. So it does raise a question about whether or not we could push the reset button on what is actually fair and reasonable to ask of our most um, ambitious students who are in a position to really load up their plates academically. On the flip side, there also were a lot of teenagers who had no access to school, who went to work for their families, who had an experience that was as far away as possible from one of relief. And so there's a whole picture here, but everybody had a different pandemic. 
And Lisa, I, I totally agree with you because there were many, many children who essentially got no education, who were, who were lost to their school systems entirely, just disappeared, in fact. And are still lost, actually. Yeah. One of the stories we're not telling is the level of school truancy and absence that has continued. That is a major ongoing force okay. from the pandemic. So, Anastasia, though, I'd still like to hear more from you about, um, you know, this picture that the data are presenting about how... Uh, teenage girls in this country are feeling the their the distresses that they're feeling. Um, can you tell me from you know your own life and con- ongoing conversations with your friends, like what are the things that you think are are are, are triggering this, or, or how is it that this perpetual emo- mental and emotional pain is happening in in girls in this country? I think one of the main drivers is definitely social media use. I mean, people are accessing social media on a daily, if not hourly basis, um, and they're forced to engage in self-comparison and a whole host of other things that don't make them feel good about themselves. And I also think that there's an increased pressure uh, for young people to exhibit perfection, basically. We're expected to... um, get straight A's, we're expected to go uh, to a top university to um, obtain a job that is high paying and also passion and and purpose driven. And there's just a lot of expectations. And I think that's largely the result of an increase in information that's spread around, uh, around. So people are just consuming more content, which means that basically they're being overstimulated and almost like feeling over inspired, but also just overwhelmed with all that is possible and is expected of them. Um, And also having hosted Our Turn to Talk, the podcast and documentary series about young people's mental health, I learned that there's also just a lot of disconnection uh, socially. So a lot of people are feeling socially isolated in their real life relationships. So even though social media is providing some sort of connection, when they turn off their phone and they go back to real life, a lot of people are realizing that their in-person connections are not as strong um, and fulfilling as they thought. And so I think that is uh, definitely a contributing factor to their negative mental health experiences. Oh, wow. You you are saying so much, Anastasia. There's like a there's like a Ph.D. thesis in each one, each part of your answer <laughs> there. I'm so grateful. Dr. Rin, um, you know, I have seen some analysis uh, that suggests, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. that prior to roughly, uh, well, 2010, let's say, um, that while we were seeing an increase in um, uh, negative mental health re- reporting from young girls in particular, from teen girls in particular, mm-hmm. that around the roughly 2010 period, it starts going, the rate of increase gets much, much, much higher. And yeah. and again, like we can't pin everything on smartphones and social media. <laughs> right. But that's just a very peculiar year to start seeing yes. things rise higher. And I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. And I really do appreciate what Anastasia has brought up. I mean, I, 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 you know, I see it in my practice, you know, that young people that will come and say, you know, 
presenting with a host of symptoms around their depression and anxiety. And we will spend a lot of time where some of the causes like seeing what they see online or via the social media or what other friends and the amount of energy that goes into trying to present a certain side of yourself that may not be the reality um, that you feel you need to do. And that's, you know, exhausting and to the point where it's just taking up so much time that's interfering with school and other relationships. So the social media is a significant um, issue. It can be helpful and then, but it can be harmful. And so it's, how do we get to the, the balance and how do we build more education around this for young people so that they can empower themselves to use it for good, but manage the negative sides to it. And, you know, we're seeing more of that in school curriculums, trying to, to build that kind of education about how to use it in a positive way and then how to turn it off for the things that actually make you end up feeling bad. And you can imagine for young people that don't have the resources to do the things that other young people are doing or to get the kinds of things that they have, um, how challenging that can be and very difficult and demoralizing. Mm. Well, Dr. Moyer Rin and Lisa Demore and Anastasia Vosova, hang on here for just a minute. We're going to talk a lot more about what we can do uh, moving forward to provide the relief, the support, uh, and the changes in the social environment to really do something positive about this mental health crisis, particularly amongst teenage girls. So that's what we'll talk about when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're joined by Lisa Demur. She's the author of several books uh, on the emotional lives of teenagers, and particularly girls. Her latest book is called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Dr. Moira Rin is with us as well. She is the chair for the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University's School of Medicine. And Anastasia Vlosova is with us. She's a mental health activist and host of the Our Turn to Talk podcast. It's a mental health podcast for teens and parents. She's also a sophomore at New York University. Uh, and I just want to uh, remind folks, and I should have said this much earlier, but if you are struggling or someone that you know is struggling and you're listening to this you can always reach out for help. You can call or text the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Again, that's 988. Now, we started talking about social media and the role that it plays. And it just reminded me, of course, that uh, Facebook slash Meta, I mean, when uh, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen um, sort of brought all that data and internal studies that Facebook has been doing about the impact uh, of their product on teens, uh, it seems like they know very well about the mental health impacts um, of lots of Facebook and Instagram use. So we just reached out to the parent company Meta 
uh, for an interview. They declined that request, but they did send us send us um, this statement from their head of their global head of safety, who says, "We want teens to be safe online. We developed more than thirty tools to support teens and families, including." supervision tools that let parents limit the amount of time their teens spend on Instagram, and they also have age verification technology uh, that helps teens have age-appropriate experiences. So that's the part of Meta's statement. Now, Anastasia, I'd love to actually hear a little, in a little bit more detail, like your early use of social media. What? How old were you and what exactly were you doing? Because I think you actually started, like you were, were you even like a early influencer? <laughs> I, I always laugh when people say that word, but um, you can call me whatever you want. I just say that I had uh, a fitness tennis health blog, um, but I downloaded Instagram summer before seventh grade. So I think I was around 12 at that time. And I at first just downloaded it to create a personal account like any other account uh, that my friends had. And then a few months into having it, I launched this additional fitness, health, tennis blog because I was getting really into playing tennis competitively. And I just started to cook healthy recipes. And basically, I was just exploring the um, fitness fanatic side of myself. And I wanted to share that uh, mm. with other young people on the platform and hopefully inspire others to also start thinking about discipline and work ethic and how to live an active lifestyle, because I saw how beneficial doing that was for me. And I soon started to get really entrenched in the, the fitness industry on Instagram, which was largely unregulated. I mean, it still pretty much isn't um, today. And I started to experience some um, toxic relationships with my food intake mm -hmm. and also with fitness. And so that led me to eventually start doing digital detoxes where I would take breaks from social media for an extended period of time. And I went back and forth, back and forth. And then around uh, the middle of high school, I stopped doing that account and took a, a pretty extensive break from social media, particularly Instagram. Yeah. Um, but then restarted a uh, an account. But it was at that point for the organization, This Is My Brave, which works to save lives through storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it's all about mental health. And I was put in charge of their teen division and running their teen mental health blog, where I interviewed different psychologists. I posted... Yeah. My own experience. Anastasia, I'm so sorry to interrupt here, but but I want to jump in because, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. I mean, it's always we always ask people to be vulnerable um, in a way that I think most people wouldn't really be willing to when they come on a show like this. So I do appreciate it. But I'm wondering if you could share just a, a couple more details about when you talked about this, you developed this unhealthy uh, relationship with eating. Because from what I understand, you were following those fitness influencers and you, you you were like, what, 13, 14, and they looked strong and healthy. So you thought they must be doing something right. So you would try what they were doing. And then did this lead to, I think you, you told our producer was leading to binge eating for you. Is that right? Yeah, because I was seeing all of these fad fitness diets basically a lot of them revolved around restricting your food intake and so i was being incredibly restrictive with my food intake and that eventually led to me depriving myself basically of um foods that i deemed or not solely i but society deemed unhealthy and not a part of a healthy lifestyle and so i started to develop this restrict and binge cycle mm -hmm. um and 
that was that was definitely a, diff- a difficult thing to deal with because it um, prolonged for years and years all the way through the beginning of university. Yeah. So, Lisa Demore, I think Anastasia is describing something that may be familiar to a lot of people because, as we've heard already from all three of you, the, the images on social media are... Well, many of them are actually false, first of all, but they're presenting this ideal of perfection that young people just can't turn off really anymore. And Anastasia had this experience where, you know, she would um, then she would try these the, the kind of diets or lifestyles that the influencers were advancing. It may not have worked for her in the way she wanted. And then she would actually feel like she, you know, she would actually have, feel like she had to punish herself for failing to live up to that ideal. So let's take two things and put them together. One is that teens are extremely vulnerable to norms, more than children are, more than adults are, in terms of what's happening around them. The other is that the social media platforms they use are largely driven by algorithms. Those algorithms will quickly detect what it is you're looking for, searching for, looking at, spending time on, liking, and serve up a huge volume of those things. So one of the things I worry about when I worry about social media is a young person who goes looking for anything related to fitness or diet or appearance or improvement and then has a flood of that content take over their social media universe. And then if they're spending a lot of time in that social media universe, maybe because they're not going to school or because they're not seeing people in real life, that starts to change behavior. Their sense of what is normal changes And that sense can be ultra-thin, ultra-fit. There's other dangerous versions of norms that get established in social media environments. But that's what we want to be attentive to. What are the norms in the social media environments where any young person is hanging out? We saw an explosion of eating disorders in the pandemic. I will largely lay that at the feet of social media, that that was what kids were looking at. They were searching. They were trying to make good use of their time and energy and get into good shape, as many of them were telling me. And then it just takes a turn because there's nothing that's working against those norms. And it's really leaving kids with the impression that an ultra-thin or an ultra-fit body is the standard. So body image being one of the things that can lead to profound upset. Are there other things on social media that you would look out for? You know, there's all sorts of sides, as they say, to TikTok. Um, And that's how kids use, that's the language kids use to describe what the algorithm is serving them on TikTok. There are horrible sides of TikTok. There are white supremacist sides of TikTok. There are incredibly dangerous things. So one thing that we want parents to be attentive to is the norms in the digital environments where kids are hanging out. Because, and Moira mentions this too, there's also upsides, right? I mean, there's goofy dance video sides of TikToks, right? I mean, there's it's not all bad. But if kids find themselves trapped in an algorithm that is taking them down a road we would never want them on, adults need to know we need to help them change course. Okay. That is very arresting language, Lisa, about kids finding themselves trapped in an algorithm. So, Dr. Rin, how would we do what Lisa suggests? Like, how do we, first of all, how do we know when kids are like that? And, And how do we untangle them from it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Lisa uh, has has just touched on that in terms of parents being aware and the involvement of parents. And pretty early on, before that very first phone that you 
provide to your teenager or middle school age child um, is to really just, you know, set up the parameters of how you're going to support them in learning how to use the technology in a way that's going to be helpful to them and having that conversation and checking in with them periodically. And so there's a whole range of options parents can can decide uh, to do in terms of you know, in discussion with the young person, and I always recommend parents to have it as a full discussion of how they'd like to be informed, be able to check, see what they're looking at um, as a way to support them and just to ensure that they're not going down a path that could be dangerous to them. So it, take, it takes a lot of monitoring and a, and a lot of discussions with, with your child and that young person into, into when they get independent on their own, where they're going to be making, uh, making those, um, those choices. Um, and it's not easy. I think it's really challenging to uh, to to do these things mm. and and to really really have that dialogue and to help them and I think the hard part for parents is that particularly I'm speaking I'm not going to share my age but you know my technical literacy compared to my two adolescents are <laughs> is just vastly different and they can outmove or outmaneuver me in every way um, but we had and I think that's a hard thing for parents you know we, we're uh, for young people who start at three and four seeing iPads and so forth um, yeah. but it is having it gets to have being involved with your young person and having that conversation and telling them what you're worried about and that you're not trying to keep them from being able to connect with their friends in, in a positive, healthy way. At the most practical level, I agree completely. And, and just a real practical point, kids often want technology because they want to start to connect with their friends right. over it. Right. And usually for younger tweens and teens, texting gets them very, very far. You know, one of the um, kind of inflection points we're trying to manage as parents is, you know, we don't want them to have a whole lot of social media, but we also don't want them to end up socially isolated because that does its own harm. So um, one thing I often recommend to parents when they do feel that their tween or teen does need technology to stay connected is see if texting alone will do that. Do it. If you give them a phone, it does not need to have a browser. It does not need to have social media apps. At the point when you give them the phone, make it clear that it does not ever go in their bedroom. And one of the beautiful things about young tweens, teens and young tweens, teens, is that um, at the point when they want a phone, they will agree to anything. So I really encourage parents to make the most of that moment to lay down pretty strict parameters and then to very, very slowly move into the digital waters because we do have data showing that the impact of social media on older teenagers is not nearly as concerning as it is on younger teenagers. And this comes as no surprise because older teenagers are more savvy. They are more easily able to see things from lots of perspective. They're less concrete in their understanding. They're more cynical. And that's actually a real value around social media use. So delay, delay, delay. See how far you can get on texting. Anastasia, um, you know, you said something a little earlier that I thought was so interesting, and it kind of brings all of these issues together, that um, people wanted to spend, they wanted to spend less time uh, on their phones and on social media. But then when they did, they found out that their in-person relationships were challenging as well, um, even though they wanted to have that connection. So I'm wondering... Um, if you could just talk for a second about how you navigated that and how have you tried to make both worlds, online connection and in-person connections, um, as healthy for you as possible now? Yeah, I think a lot of it revolved around realizing that taking time off of social media 
is time that I'd be gaining to reinvest in myself and my own personal development and basically grow into the person that I want to be and present to the world. And that way I'd be able to attract people into my life who basically I align with on, in terms of energy, aspirations, values, um, interests, all of that. I think that time off of social media is an opportunity for young people to engage in self-discovery and self-inquiry um, and self-reflection, which are all things that using social media on an hourly basis can really get in the way of. And if we don't engage in all of those practices, then we don't really know ourselves. And therefore, we don't really know what we want to look for in life, whether that's in friendships or perhaps careers or just hobbies or anything. And so I really, I, I literally sat down, I think, when I deleted my social media account and listed the pros and cons. And I realized that the cons of using it simply outweighed the pros. Mm. I mean, I was a way more anxious person. I was way more concerned with external validation um, and my self-confidence confidence was very volatile, I would say, when I was using social media regularly. But once I deleted it and I was without it for about six months at first and then a year and then a year and a half. I mean, within the first three months, I considered perhaps I should get it again or at some point down the line, I will download it. Um, but the longer the the longer that the time went by um, of not having it, I realized that I simply was just creating the life that I truly felt yeah. content and calm about. Um, and so, yeah, I would say engaging in self-reflection mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. investing time and just getting out of your comfort zone and truly talking to people right. is one of the first steps. Well, we've got oof, a tiny, tiny amount of time left, and I want to give a couple seconds both to Lisa uh, and Moira here. Lisa, if you could make a little checklist for parents about what to look for yep. in terms of if they're particularly their girls are feeling distress. Yeah. So it's hard at times to tease apart typical adolescent distress from mental health concerns because Normally, developing teenagers have lots of ups and downs. Here's what we do not want to see. We do not want to see mood that goes to a concerning place and stays there. Mood should go up and down in teenagers, but if your teenager is so low or so anxious that it's getting in the way of their life, that is grounds for concern. We do not want to see teenagers who are using what I call costly coping. So they're managing their mood with things that have a cost. They're using substances. They are incredibly hard on the people around them. They are turning against themselves in terms of their own care. They're not taking good care of themselves. None of those things are um, under the umbrella of healthy development. We would definitely want help for young people if any of those things came up. Mm. Well, I'm afraid with that, we're actually out of time. Um, the last point I was going to make with you, Dr. Rin, but maybe I'll just make it myself, is that also it seems like there isn't enough help available out there right. for kids when they need it, because we've been hearing a lot about that, too. So we will right. come back to that issue um, sometime in the future, I do promise you. But with that, Dr. Moira Rin, Chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Anastasia Vlasova, mental health activist and host of the Our Turn to Talk podcast. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Lisa Demore, psychologist and author of many books about teens. The latest is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> <laughs>